please have a seat. We'll start. Let us pray. We beseech thee, O Lord, pour thy grace into our hearts, that as we have known the incarnation of thy Son, Jesus Christ, by the message of an angel, so by his cross and passion, we may be brought unto the glory of his resurrection through the same Christ our Lord. Amen. I have to repeat that prayer so many times because I just absolutely love that prayer. That and the other one I use, I think, sum up all about what we're about. Last time, Father Mark made a point that we need to remember always, and that is when we gather this information, we don't, I mean, we really come to understand how much we stand in opposition to, or at least from a different perspective. We see the Christian faith from a different perspective, other people around us, American Christians, uh, and that doesn't give us the right to lord it over others as if we somehow have arrived and they haven't. In fact, the minute we cross that line, we have joined the people we're condemning. <laughs> so I think you addressed that today in the sermon. There's a problem in us. And so that's not what we're doing here. We're trying to understand it properly so that we don't misunderstand and call orthodox something which is basically... Uh, well, it's not limited to in the United States, but it's basically an American proposition. I like to call it American Christianity. Uh, so we have to be really careful of what we're doing. Uh, Yaroslav Pelikan, who was a Lutheran pastor for years and converted to Orthodoxy in the last years of his life, has written a number of books. And one of the things he said, which is sort of true here, and applies here, was that, and especially since we're going to talk about tradition today, he said, let's see if I can remember how it was worded, it was... What is it? Tradition, tradition is, is tradition is from the the, the tradition comes to us from the dead. Uh, modern, in the modern world, uh, the the dead receive dead tradition or some such thing. I mean, Yaroslav Pelikan really had his act together, and and he became. I think he was a professor at St. Vlad's Seminary for some point in time, toward the end of his life. Uh, but even his works before that are, are, are often worth reading. They're a little bit deep, but still. In any case, I want to talk about tradition today. What is tradition and why do we believe in it? Or the question might be, why do you believe in it? Uh, the next time we'll be looking at, which will be in a couple of weeks, we'll be looking at uh, the question, is it scriptural? Which sort of fits along with this. Uh, the, word of the word tradition in the New Testament is parodosis. Uh, I think I should probably write this down. Oh, I think it's O-S-I-S, -S, or is it para-a, uh, P-A-R-A, forgive me. Parodosis, which means a handing down or over what we have received, the living and the correct understanding of what God has done and revealed. 
So it's not only contained in scripture, but elsewhere. It's often translated tradition or traditions in the New Testament. Now, the American Christianity version that we get is that because Jesus and St. Paul condemned parodicists or traditions, that all tradition is bad. Jesus said this in Matthew 15, 2 to 6. Why do your disciples, the scribes and Pharisees who were in Jerusalem came to Jesus saying, why do your disciples transgress the tradition of the elders, the rabbinic fathers? For they do not wash their hands when they eat bread. He answered and said to them, why do you also transgress the commandment of God because of your tradition? Uh, so that's a negative connotation there. In, to, in his letter to the Colossians, St. Paul said this, Beware lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit, according to the tradition of men, according to the basic principles of the world, and not according to Christ. Both of those use the word parodicus, tradition, in a negative light. And that's where we get the notion in American Christianity that somehow tradition is a bad thing. So when you come to orthodoxy and everything is tradition, oh, those people, there must be a cult or a false religion or some such thing. And then we don't want to believe it because we don't want to be accused of that. But the fact of the matter is, we need to understand what it means. Okay, so you have, you have two of them, and they're not necessarily negative. In, in his letter to the... Whoop. You know, these, they, they make these Bibles with these thin pages because Bibles are supposed to be in fine pages, right? And then they make it worse by putting icons in it which are thick, so you go to find your page, and you can't find it because the pages are through, then you turn one or two pages, and you've gone six books. Or, <laughs> and just when you figure it out, you get an icon in there, which messes everything up, and so. Uh, it's tradition. Yeah, it's tradition, <laughs> yes. You and Rev Tevye. <laughs> okay. So, in, in, Second Corinthians, in 2 Thessalonians, and, and I'll tell you this, and I'll come back to this in another point, but the first, it's believed that the first books of the New Testament that were written down were first and second Thessalonians in 51 AD. So this is one of the first written accounts of what's been handed on in the faith. Uh, and St. Paul says this in two, chapter 2, verse 15. Therefore, brethren, stand fast and hold the traditions, parodicists, which you were taught, whether by word or our epistle. Now, this is the second epistle that's being written, so only one has existed prior to this, probably. Uh, but hold the traditions, which means there's a good tradition, right? Okay, in 3.6 he says, But we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you withdraw from every brother who walks disorderly and not according to the tradition, the parodicists, which he received from us. Who is us? The apostles. Apostolic tradition. So there is tradition, the tradition of the elders or philosophy of the world's tradition, and there is also the apostolic tradition. We're talking about the apostolic tradition. So when we talk about it, that's, it is that to which we are referring. Keep that in mind. What is the apostolic tradition then? It is, the apostolic tradition is the doctrinal liturgical, moral, spiritual package which was handed down from the apostles. And for us, that means, and you need to hear this, it means the Bible, the apostolic context of the Bible, 
That is, we don't understand the Bible except in the context of Christ and the Incarnation. Period. So, the lives of the saints, the liturgy, the writings of the fathers, canon law, the decisions of the ecumenical councils, iconography, understanding theology, spirituality, ecclesiology, etc. That's all a part of the apostolic tradition. So when we talk about it, that's what we're talking about. Wow. Incredible package. And everything needs to be understood that way because then it, it's, inter, it's interwoven. I don't know if you've noticed, but we're gradually filling in pieces here. Little by little, little pieces we're putting together. We're, we're, we're drawing out the whole tradition in what we've been talking about. Of which the Bible is the most important part. So it's not that we don't believe in the Bible. We do, but we believe it in a different context. It doesn't stand alone. It's a part of the apostolic tradition, which was received by us. The Bible is tradition. The liturgy is tradition. Some of you may remember a movie called The Elephant Man. And I saw this back in the 70s when it first came out. And I remember I was a young naive Christian operating purely from a Protestant, non-Orthodox perspective. But there was one scene where John, what's his name, John? I can't remember his name now. I had it before I got here. Merrick, John Merrick, uh, had, was a scene of him, him in his bed, or scene of his bedroom where he stayed. And on the table next to his bed was a book of common prayer. So he was an Anglican, obviously. But I remember as a young Christian thinking, oh, if he were a real Christian, he'd have a Bible there. Well, let me, let me just say this in defense of that scene. That the, 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 the Book of Common Prayer, the old Book of Common Prayer, the one that John Merrick would have used, was filled with scripture verses and scripture passages. Anyone who got to know what was in that book had a good knowledge of scripture. <laughs> By default, that's the way tradition works. So really what we saw there was a scene was sort of like tradition in the real sense of the word. This is what's called the deposit of faith. The deposit of faith. This is what's been handed on to us and given to us. This is what we have received. And in Luke 1, 1 to 4, in 1 Corinthians 11, 23, uh, we receive the we we hear the concept of received and delivered. That is, we receive the faith and this whole package, and we deliver it on to the next generation unchanged, unaltered. Because if we deliver something else, we don't deliver what we received. That's why we don't change things, not indiscriminately, at least, not carelessly. You don't change just because we want to. We have to do it very, very carefully to make sure we're passing on the same thing. I, I read you something from, from Bishop Basil, since we were talking about him. Uh, this is in Father Zachariah's first, I say it's first book that I saw, The Enlargement of the Heart. Apparently, according to the way his publications went, it was his second work. Uh, but anyway, it was at, these are the, the, his presentations and the clergy responses at, at a clergy retreat. The first one where he... he he, he was invited here to talk to us. And afterwards, at one occasion, Bishop Basil stood up and said something. He interjected it that fits our whole notion of under, an understanding of tradition here. Uh, and so these are Bishop Basil's words in Father Zacharias' books. And he said, 
A few moments ago, Father Zacharias very calmly spoke one sentence in which he mentioned four saints. And these were, all these people were mentioned before they were sainted by the church. Elder Saproni asking another saint, Nikolai Velimirovich, what he thought about his own book about another saint, Silouan, in which he quoted another saint, Justin Popovich, all sons of the 20th century, commenting on Saint Silouan. <laughs> Did you get that? He said, he said, you know how the church's understanding of tradition comes from the Greek word parodosis, a passing on. One person passing on something unchanged, something very valuable and precious and important, utterly important from one generation to the next. And we have just received something precious. We are participating in tradition in a very existential way. Participating in it. That's what we do. So if we have to, if we have to stand and refute something, we have to be careful that we're doing it in such a way that what we're doing is orthodox. And just condemning people because they don't get it isn't orthodox. The fact of the matter is, most of us either don't get it now or we haven't gotten it in the past. I can certainly say that of me. It takes time. Some of us are hard-headed. I'm one, you know? Bang, bang. Let's wake up, buddy, and look and see. Oh, that's what it means. Why didn't you tell me that? Well, we did. We've been telling you that for years. And so, anyway. Well, just let it sit and, it, and, and keep doing what it says. Do what it says and, and don't worry about it, and it will come eventually. I, I've told you this before, but many years ago, I asked God to show me why. I shouldn't even tell you what the actual thing was, but one of the questions, it had something to do with why, because I don't want you to ask me, and I don't have to go into it. I'm still not sure I've gotten all the answer yet. But uh, in any case, I asked God one of the reasons why something was held by Christians, one belief. Um, and I didn't get, get an answer until I became Orthodox, and even now I'm not sure I've gotten the whole answer. So it ta that's 30 years ago. So it takes time for some of us. Some of us get it right away. Thanks be to God. So nothing can be, is changed without great care, uh, and we don't let those, as we saw last time, outside the church tell us that we need to change it. If we follow Christ, we will be rejected by the world, for it does not understand. And that's just the way it is. We come into the great mystery of God, and the world does not understand it. It's sort of like that video, right? <laughs> uh, so... Anyway, let me show you something here about the apostolic the notion of the concept of tradition in the first century. The written word, as we saw, was only partly defined in the Old Testament, the law and the prophets at the time of Christ. Remember the law and the prophets, maybe the Psalms. The writings might have been written down, but they were floating out there as a loose collection which hadn't been identified formally as canon or as, as acceptable of any kind of tradition, definitive tradition. The gospel was available only in oral form. Think about this. If Christ, if Christ was resurrected, the traditional year is 33. A lot of scholars now argue anywhere from 28 to 30. But let's just stick with the, because since we don't know for certain, let's just stick with the year 33. 
If Christ was resurrected in the year 33 and the new te- first New Testament book was written down in 51, you have an 18-year period of the gospel being handed on by oral transmission. That is, everybody learned it and received it and passed it on, believed it and passed it on. Oral tradition. That is tradition. It precedes Scripture, in a sense. And all the Old Testament that was written down is received in the light of that, in the light of the life of Christ. So liturgy had been handed on from Judaism, Christ and the apostles, and theology was what, was, what had been received. Theology. I, I read these scholars who like to call, say that St. Paul spoke of his theology. St. Paul's theology of the cross, for example. St. Paul wasn't doing anything new. He was presenting the tradition of the church, the apostolic tradition. He didn't come up with anything new. I don't, I don't see it, not anymore. And it's totally in harmony with what has gone on before, not necessarily with rabbinic Judaism, but with, with Old Testament concepts. So the tradition was oral until he started writing it down and others wrote down the gospel accounts, even later on. So two examples of the application of tradition to helping us understand the truth. Let's talk about the Eucharistic celebration, the body and blood of Christ. Do this in remembrance of me. Well, that just goes show that's a metaphor, and remembrance means we just remember. You see, the problem is we in English don't have a word to, cover, to translate the Greek word, so we have to remember is the best we've got. So we use that word, but in Greek it's anamnesis which means to bring into the present something which happened in another moment in time, to make present, and that's a cheap translation of it, but that's the best we can do in English. We just don't understand the concept. It's interesting, I haven't looked at this in detail, but what I've noticed is that in the gospel accounts, uh, Matthew and Mark, of Matthew and Mark, the Last Supper does not use the word, do this, the line, do this in remembrance of me. They were written primarily to Jewish communities, which would have understood the concept of anonymous. They didn't need to be told, do this. Well, we got it. We know what that means. In the Passover liturgy, it says, it is as if we have gone, ourselves have gone forth out of Egypt. A Jewish person understands that concept. At Passover, you participate in the action that occurred in, what, 1200 B.C. or something like that. We participate in it. So they didn't need to have that in the, in the Eucharistic celebration, any explanation of that or any translation of it. And yet when St. Paul wrote, in, in, when St. Luke wrote his gospel account to Gentiles, primarily with an emphasis to taking the gospel to, to non-Jewish people, and St. Paul wrote to the Corinthian church, was primarily a church of, of pagan Greek or Greek converts and converts from paganism, both of them put in there anamnesis, because they had to explain to these people what that means, because nobody knew outside. They didn't have that implied understanding. And I find it interesting that in the, in the Eastern Rite does not use anamnesis, the Eastern part of the old empire, and the Western Rite, the Greek Gorian doesn't either use it either, does it? But the, but the Tikhon Rite does. So we're all a bunch of lost pagans, you see. Uh, <laughs> it's good for our humility. Uh, so in any case, the Orthodox have always 
the church is, if you go back doing the backward test, looking at the Eucharist, the church has always understood it to be the body and blood of Christ. Christ said is, 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 is. And therefore it is. You won't find anybody arguing about whether it is. You might find some people going back to about the 10th, 9th centuries who are beginning to argue how it is, but not whether it is. That's not the issue. And that's how tradition influences it. It's tradition that tells us the right way to believe in this thing. We do this, we do this because we've been told to do it, and it's a part of the tradition. And that's what gives it life. And the tradition says if you look here and understand this, it'll come alive. And it does, doesn't it? And it never stops coming alive. Just when I think I've figured it all out, a few more things happen. <laughs> uh, and then I realize we're on a long journey into eternity. What about the title of father? You know, Matthew 23, Jesus said, call no man father. Therefore, we're not calling your priest father. And all you people who call us father, you got it all wrong. And you're probably going to hell. Uh, <laughs> I'm being facetious here, forgive me. Uh, in any case, uh, that's, the, that's what we often hear. And yet we base the title of father on, on not on Matthew 23, but that's not that notwithstanding. 1 Corinthians 4.15 I have begotten you through the gospel, St. Paul said. And some translations read, I am your father who has begotten you. So what is it? Well, in Matthew 23, Jesus said, call no man father, master, or teacher. And yet some of us choose to choose one word and forget the other two. Now, we can't have it either way. Jesus said all three. All three were titles of rabbinic sages who, who, because of the titles, were understood that they could translate Scripture and the commandments in Scripture any way they wanted. If you want to see a good version of that, read the tome this thick of the Mishnah. That's the Mishnah. That's not even the Talmud. The, the Palestinian Talmud, which is six volumes. <laughs> so you'll get an idea of what that means. Call no man father, teacher, or master. By the way, master and mister are derived in English from the same word. So then we can't use the word mister either. I remember Anglicans for years didn't want to call priests father, so they called them the reverend mister. <laughs> so well, going from the frying pan into the fire, I guess, uh, and not understanding something. In any case, he said... Call no man teacher, master, or father. And if we apply it only to mean one and not the others, we are applying a translation, an understanding. And that's the concept of the tradition being applied. It's just not the tradition of the church. The church has used a word, usually from the Aramaic, about concerning father, going back to the second century when some of the first abbots were called that, or individual monks were called abbas. So it goes way, way back, and nobody ever thought there was something wrong or that it contradicted Matthew 23. Nobody, at least not that I've ever seen. That's how the tradition works. It's the essence of what has been handed down. Everything we have covered so far fits into this. Now, having said that, you can see what, when we talk about we believe in the apostolic tradition, you can see what we mean, everything fits in there. We don't want to mess with the liturgy. We don't want to mess with the theology. We don't want to mess with anything. That could get to where you're almost afraid to say a word when you write an article as a priest. 
be afraid to say a word for fear it might be violating the tradition in some way and passing off a bad habit to everybody. <coughs> I've even, <coughs> excuse me, I even thought it about a couple of times sitting up here and talking to you. Um, just, tell, just tell God that that idiot Rooney told you so. <laughs> you got an out. So, in any case, so tradition is a handing down. Uh, there can be good and, and, true and bad tradition or, or true and false tradition. goes back to the apostles. Ours does. It's written and oral, so it's outside the content of Scripture, which, which Scripture is a major part of it. It's unchanging, and it's, it's an understanding of a perception of what reality really is. Now, I mentioned to one of you, some, somebody asked me about tradition and traditions, and, and usually the way that's worked is tradition is with the uppercase T and traditions are with the lowercase T. Well, traditions are customs, with lowercase T. Usually like genuflections, barefoot communion, sitting during that tinea, when we make the sign of the cross, and let me just go back and show you how these work. Genuflections are a Western Rite practice. They're, they're, I think, the equivalent of the Eastern Rite prostration. You don't want to do prostrations. So somewhere in the West, they came up with the notion of a genuflection, which is a little easier unless you have bad knees, in which case it's not so handy. Uh, when we're allowed to bow, which you can do in Eastern Rite as well. Uh, so whether one genuflects or prostrates oneself is a tradition, lowercase t. It's not the action of doing something physically is part of the tradition, the uppercase T, but the, the, the specifics are a little different. Barefoot communion, we don't see that here. That's a Coptic and Ethiopian practice of the Orthodox. Even the priests take their shoes off and say mass barefoot. But that's a tradition. Lowercase t. We don't have to do it. And we're not in violation of the tradition, uppercase T, if we choose not to do it. What about sitting during the Actinia? Actinia is the Eastern Rite name for a, for a litany. Uh, most Orthodox, Eastern Orthodox, stand during the litanies. The Antiochian Patriarch sits during the litanies. So, what is right? Well, the litanies at the beginning, and our version of the, lit, the Great Litany is, in the Western Rite, the version is the Kyrie and the Gloria together. Uh, and we do it standing, which is what most of the Eastern Rite churches do. It comes to us from the, what's called the 18 benedictions of Judaism, which were said standing. And in fact, that part of their synagogue liturgy was called Amidah, the standing, the period where we all stand. So we could argue that the church tradition says you're supposed to stand during these things, and therefore those people are all going to hell because they're sitting down during the litanies, you know. Uh, and don't you dare, if you have bad back or anything, sit down during the Kyrie and the Gloria, you know, or I'm going to be reporting you. That doesn't matter if I'm not doing it, because I, I'm, you know, I'm father, I can do whatever I want. <laughs> <laughs> well, what about when we make the sign of the cross? In the Eastern Rite, the, the Gloria Patri, they make the sign of the cross. We don't in the Western Rite. We can, but we bow. They generally don't bow in the Eastern Rite at the sign of the cross. So, well, you can do, you know, here's the thing. When you're in a church like ours, we don't want to cross liturgies. We want to stick with the Western Rite, and they, people Eastern Rite, stick with the Eastern Rite. However, when you're in among them, it's hard not to. 
when, when you go to an Eastern Rite Church for a while and everybody's making the sign of the cross at the Gloria Patri, you can always tell somebody in our parish that's been there at least an Eastern Rite Church a few times. When the Gloria Patri comes, they make the sign of the cross. You, you can't help yourself. You know, it just happens. But those are traditions, lowercase t, as opposed to the tradition. Now, doing the Gloria Patri at the end of psalms and canticles and hymns is a part of the uppercase tradition. We do that. And making the sign of the cross is a part of the yeah. case. Yeah. Just the win and all that. So, in terms of questions for others and for us, Christ rejected errant tradition, not all of tradition, and the Bible texts themselves prove it. Tradition is the most ancient and the earliest accounting of Christian belief and practice. Remember that 18-year period. The apostolic tradition predates the New Testament and preserved it until it was recorded. Tradition decided which books were part of the New Testament. You know that there never has been a formal canonizing of the New Testament. There have been canons passed which included most of the books of the New Testament, but not all of them. <laughs> which means a formal accounting exactly as we have it with the books we have it has never been done. But that's okay. It doesn't mean we don't believe that they're apostolic or that the, the collection is correct or that even could be added to it. Although the Ethiopians like to add Enoch to the, I don't know whether it's the Old Testament or the New, one or the other. Uh, and the tradition clarifies how Bible verses are to be understood and observed. So when we come across a Bible verse, and we're going to look at this when we talk about is it scriptural, we're going to look at the different levels of scripture and see how this can happen. Uh, we, we, we want to understand it in the light of the tradition that goes before us. Those who have gone before us have been down this road. They've asked all the questions we ask. They've pondered all the things that cause us to ponder. Uh, and they've answered it all. And there are volumes and volumes and volumes and volumes of their writings. If you want to go, go into the library, we have the 38 volumes of the, Apostol the Nicene, was it the, 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 the Anti-Nicene, Nicene, and Post-Nicene Fathers. 38 volumes. That's just 38 that's specific, specific writings. That's not the, the whole thing. So you don't want to do that, but I'll show you some of it. But. In any case, that's the sort of the eternity in which we go. So when we talk about tradition, we want to see it in that light. It's something greater than that, and it's advocated in the New Testament, in the apostolic faith that's been handed on to us. It's far more than anything we ever asked or imagined. Questions? Before we get to questions, you know, some, when he mentioned St. Paul's writing in Second Thessalonians, hold fast to the traditions that we, the apostles, have given both by word and epistle. Just consider this. That same apostle, he lived in Corinth, starting that church, teaching every day, day and night, for three years. We don't have any of it in Scripture. We have two letters written after he left to both correct, exhort, and encourage because they weren't following what he had, what Christ through him had revealed. Okay? That's the stuff that we have to ask ourselves the question, and that is tradition. Yeah. 
is the entirety of the revelation of Christ to his people for their salvation. One priest put it this way. I really appreciated this. How many of you have seen the movie National Treasure? Okay. So some of you will recognize this. So they've got this map that only shows up when you put some lemon juice heated up and all that on the back of, of the Declaration of Independence. But then they found these goggles, <coughs> these glasses supposedly created by Benjamin Franklin that were, there were two in the front, two in the back. You put them on. Book of Mormon. Book of Mormon. <laughs> <laughs> let's, let's rewind that one, Father. No, but, and then you looked at the map with the goggles just like they are, and you see things you never saw before. You raise one of the glasses, you see even more. You raise both of them, take away this and that, and all of a sudden everything's being revealed that's there to be seen. That's tradition. It's, it is Christ sharing himself and his mind with us regarding our faith, our salvation, and that's why we have to have it. If we don't, we're running blind on a map we can't even see. We have to have the entirety. It's a, it is him to us. Yes. I'm going to pitch you a softball. <laughs> Slow pitch or fast pitch? <laughs> Slow pitch. This is, this That's my speed. How can we trust oral transmission? Have you ever played the telephone game? Because <laughs> <laughs> we measure it by what we've received, and we, and we usually take it under authority. So we receive it in the church. Receive it under the authority of the church and the authority structure itself. Ecclesiology is fitting the tradition. Keeps us within the bounds. It's like Psalm 136 where the blessing, the blessing that's given to the one who's, who's in the temple and under the priesthood. And he said it's like the oil that comes down upon the head when the priest was anointed and down upon the beard and down upon the vestments. As long as we stay in there, that's where the image is. We get blessed and we understand. And that's how we tell telephone game is one person whispering to the next. There's no witness. Yeah. The oral tradition is many telling it to many in public. Yeah. In, in, the, in the sight and hearing of all. And so that's answering my own question. That's, that's how it's checked. Because as we've discussed, if one person is saying something wrong, the others can address it, correct it, or even cut them out and say this is wrong. Church has done it throughout its history. We can measure, we can measure what we what we think might be tradition by the tradition itself. But whatever we measure, it's always even greater than that. And that doesn't mean it's something else. It just means it's it's even more than we ever ask or imagine. I would add something here too. I remember when I, before I was Orthodox, the church I was in believed in tradition, but it believed in scripture and tradition. And what I'm trying to tell you is that for Orthodoxy, it's one and the same thing. It's not two separate things. Therein lies one mistake that's made. There's tradition and there's the scripture. Scripture is tradition. Tradition includes scripture. 
Scripture includes the hierarchy of the church. That's why we rejoice when the bishop comes to visit us and receive a blessing. We know the church is whole. Notice the bishop's chair in the church is always empty. It's always there no matter which church you're in, what right it is, there will be the bishop's chair. And it's empty because he's not here. He can't be here. So we take his place, represent him, just like you represent all the world. We all represent all the world here, but not everybody's here. But we can measure it by that concept and that understanding and think of all that's implied in that that is passed on to us just in our understanding. Wow. Well, anytime, anyway, the next time, which will be a couple of weeks, not next week because the bishop's going to be here, but in two weeks, is it scriptural? We'll address the whole issue of that question. Is something scriptural? And how the Orthodox respond to that? Okay? Thank you.